morning, there is something that we are celebrating that's real, something profound that's taken place in our lives, something that took place in history. And we sit here today as remembering and reminding ourselves and encouraging each other of what is true so that we can live in light of that. You see us and you know us, you know that we are but dust. And we need the encouragement that that the gathering together can have and that the reading of your word will have and the singing and the giving and all that goes on here. We need that. And I pray, Father, that you would use this time this morning, this one day in seven for us to be encouraged, to be challenged, to remember what is ultimately true so that we will not believe the lies, lies of the world. Father, use your word this morning. Thanks that you have spoken to us. You haven't left us without your voice, without your spirit. Pray that you would use me as your messenger. Most of all, would you superintend all that's said? Would you use it in our lives and apply it to us, particularly in our situations, knowing that you know us intimately and that you love us greatly and that you're at work in our lives and our situations. And so we come to you this morning needing you to open our eyes so that we can see, open our ears so that we might hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. i got to tell you, I had one of those dreams last night. One of those dreams, even though we had an extra hour of sleep, it was the dream that I was late to getting to church here this morning. You know, and you're going and there's all these barriers that get in the way as you're trying to get to church. And I knew I'd be late and so I woke up early and I actually got here on time and but it was just a, a nightmare, and I don't know what that means exactly, <laughs> but uh, I am glad to be here and on time and, and to see all of you here as well. Exodus 6, we're going to look at this passage this morning, and it's a little bit maybe out of the blue. When you're preaching for one Sunday, it's hard to sometimes identify a passage, but in my Sunday school class last week, um, we looked at this passage on the gospel, and this morning we're going to look at this This account, as it really is kind of a central point for the whole story of Exodus. It's a central point for the whole account of God's deliverance of his people from slavery. And it tells us about who God is and what his intentions are for us as his people. I'm going to read the last two verses of chapter 5 and through verse 9 of chapter 6. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil done evil to this people. Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God 
And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. As I said, this passage is really a central piece of what God is doing in the book of Exodus. It's as, as he puts on display his act to deliver them from the sla- slavery to Egypt and the Egyptians. This event, this account, is a defining moment for Israel. It's one of those moments that everyone afterwards, the whole of Scripture, the whole of the Old Testament, looks back upon as a, a de- defining moment for them. It identifies who they are. There are certain kinds of activities, there are certain kinds of events in history that define and mark people or a generation or a group of people. I don't know if you remember where you were on April 7th, 2008, but I remember right where I was as I watched the Jayhawks win the national championship. And that moment, in that evening, if you were there, I still remember 8 o'clock, you sit down and you start watching the game. And that championship, that game defined a whole group of people. Right? In fact, the whole game was boiled down to what? One point in time with less than 10 seconds left in the game when one Mario Chalmer, Chalmers hits the shot that sends the game into overtime. And if you were at my house, one very tall person jumped into the air, hit our ceiling fan, and, and dust went everywhere. And there was like confetti falling in our living room at that shot. That defined, and it was a moment that marked in my, in my mind, and I'm sure in yours, if you happen to be a lover of the Jayhawks. Now, if you think about it, the days that followed that one event, do you remember what happened? There was all kinds of celebrations. In fact, that night, thousands of people rushed down to Mass Street. And why did they do that? They, they did it to celebrate, to mark that point in time, a point that they would remember, Okay. And then even days after that, they showed the game over and over and over again. You could turn on the radio, turn on the television, and you could watch the game. Now, why did we do that? There was something that took place in the watching of the game that marked that moment. A kind of glory, a kind of wonder, and yes, that's who we are. We are Jayhawks. And it defined a whole group of people for that moment in time and for the future. And now, what do they do? They talk about that moment in the history. And it marks the future of the Jayhawks as a result of the past. Now, that might be a little bit overstated for some of us um, in understanding how a moment marks us. For some of us, it might not be overstated enough in the way that we understand this. But as we look at this event in Exodus, we see that it was at a moment, it was a point in which God defined a group of people, in which the Exodus was viewed by Israel as something that told them who they were. In fact, the whole Old Testament is oriented around this moment. They look back on it and, and the, the people, even generations after this event, were marked and identified. And I read in the call to worship this morning that the people of the, those who are redeemed say so. Those who identify themselves who were with those group of people who had been redeemed and rescued out of the land of slavery God had rescued his people from slavery. He brought them to himself. And the whole identity of Israel was tied to that. The Exodus was not, however, just a historical event, which it was in the Old Testament. It provides a kind of pattern for us in the New Testament as we look back. It provides a necessary backdrop to understand the salvation that God 
was intending to do in and through Jesus Christ. Redemption and ransom are the central descriptions used to describe God's salvation of his people. The God, as he comes to say that there is a rescue that's necessary, there is slavery that's a part of it and slavery to sin, and rescue and ransom are necessary as a part of that. Deliverance from slavery is at the very heart of what God has done in Christ. It's at the very heart of who God is. Exodus 6 is the point in which God reveals his intentions to this people in this historical setting in uh, the Hebrews in Egypt. And he ties this new name that he gives to them, to this account, to this occasion of what he's going to do. So much so that when we want to ask the question, who is God? Who is the Lord? He says, if you want to know who I am, you need to look at what I'm about to do. And we understand God is the one who is the redeeming God. If we read this and somehow we don't understand, though, it's not just a historical event, but it's a pattern that God is presenting for us, then we miss the point. He reveals himself as an all-powerful God. He reveals himself as a king who is all-sufficient. He is the one who has created all things. But in this moment, in this point in time, he says, what I want to be known as, what I want you to see me as, is the redeeming God, the one who rescues people from slavery. The one who stoops down and condescends in order to ransom and to redeem his people. And as we look at the passage today, I want us to understand what the gospel is. I want us to see this, the gospel, through this lens of a God who saves, a God who rescues, a God who meets our deepest and most profound needs and grants our greatest desire. And this passage gives us that. A little bit of context to this, if you know the story, uh, maybe you've watched the movie, but they were in, the, Israel had been enslaved for 400 years, oppressed. When they came in, there were 70 of them. They had grown to, a, to be a great multitude. And so 400 years they grew. What's ironic in, in that period of time is they had grown to be a, a great and numerous nation. However, they were still enslaved. So God had blessed them in number, so much so that, that Pharaoh sought to end their growth by killing the children that were there that were born but they were still enslaved. Moses, we see, was born and saved in an extraordinary way as he was raised in the house of Pharaoh. We see that as he tried to rescue the people kind of in his own hand, that he killed one of the Egyptians and he had to flee as a result of that becoming known. He flees to Midian, becomes a shepherd there approximately for 40 years. And then we have the incident where God calls him for this particular service to go into be his spokesperson to set the people free. And so at the burning bush, God calls him, empowers him, and sends him back to Egypt. He approaches Pharaoh at this point in the chapter before this, in chapter 5. He is welcomed eventually as the messenger of God to the people. They receive him, he goes. But something happens at this point in time in chapter 5 that's not exactly expected. Whatever Moses and the people might have thought was going to happen, exactly the opposite happens. As he shows up on the scene, he says, let my people go. God says to do this, and I'm going to, we're going to go into the wilderness and have a feast. Pharaoh doesn't just let them go. And it seems to be a great surprise to Moses when this takes place. In fact, just the opposite happens. Instead of letting them go, he gives them more work to do. He says, it looks like you've got plenty of time on your hands. What I'm going to do, instead of letting you go, I'm going to give you more work. Instead of, I'm going to take away your straw and you're going to have as many bricks to make. 
except you're not going to have any straw. And so he increases their workload. He decreases their capacity to do the work. Indeed, their own wives are now in even greater danger as a result of Moses having gone and to represent God before the people. And so if you can imagine the circumstances now, they thought we're going to be rescued. They show up and exactly the opposite, the opposite happens. Now they're in a much worse condition than they even were before. So what you have is confusion here. You have disillusionment on the part of the people. And especially on behalf of the messenger, the spokesperson, the prophet Moses, who says, wait a second, Lord, this isn't exactly what you said was going to happen. And it's at this point we enter this story, at this point in this delusionment and this kind of uh, confusion that we have in them. And when we walk through this passage, there's some questions that we're going to see. The first question that Moses asked, which is an impossible question to answer, it's an honest one though, he says why. But God doesn't answer his question why in the way that he, he desires. Like God, he oftentimes doesn't answer our questions. But he answers the question with when, who, and a what. So God responds with when, who, and what. But the first question we see is why. And we see this honest interaction, this honest prayer between Moses and God. They're on, it's honest, and yet, if I can use these words, he was on the, it was on the edge of being reckless with the words. Verses 22 and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And get this last line. It's not even a question. It's a statement. It's an accusation. You have not delivered your people at all. Do you see the words? Do you see the question? There's a kind of honesty that's there. What is going on? I don't understand your ways. Everything I thought was going to happen has not happened. And so in the midst of these honest questions, we're we see a little bit of what Moses anticipated. He thought it was going to be quick work. He thought it was going to be with minimal difficulty that this would take place. He thought he would walk in, say the words, Pharaoh would let them go and they would leave. But exactly the opposite has taken place of the outcome. Have you ever found yourselves in that situation where you're sure God has called you, you've heard his voice, and he leads you into a situation and you move in charging knowing that God is going to show up in a supernatural, extraordinary kind of way and you get there out on the edge of the limb and it appears that God's about ready to cut the limb off. That you said, let's go, and he, you look around and say, wait a second, where did you go? I thought you led me here. How did I get here? Why did you send me here? Why didn't you show up in the way that I expected you to show up? And it's in those points in times where we ask the question, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing it in this way? Well, we see that, that in this situation, there's this kind of honesty that Moses is able to approach God. And it reveals fully the condition of the people. And if they ever thought that maybe this slavery situation was amenable, maybe if this is workable, the situation now reveals the full extent of their condition, which they might not have known before. The full extent of their condition was that they were under the thumb of Pharaoh, that they were at the full mercy of their captors. And so here they are. God has called them into the situation, but he has apparently not shown up, and certainly in the way that they expected. And when God can, but God doesn't, we're always left with a question why. When God can, but God doesn't, we are always left with the question, why? 
And the answer, although we don't always know what that answer is, involves two things, right? It involves something he's doing in us and something he's doing to reveal who he is. And indeed, that's what's taken place in this case. As we look at the prayer, there's a couple things that are important for us. One, there is a place for us to ask the question, why? In real honesty, to come before God and say, why did you do this? Why is this the case? And yet, as we approach God with the kinds of questions, and even as we look at Moses' questions and his statements and accusations towards God, God is not threatened by them. But we need to take care. We need to remember who it is that we're praying to. And we need to remember the warning, the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes when he writes, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on, our, you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Moses came before God in all honesty, and there was, there was a real honesty there. As we, there's an honesty as well too. There's experiences that we go through being real people. People with feet of clay who are finite, can only see so much. And yet, we need to be careful. Moses' prayer, however, was directed in the right direction. It was pointed towards God. And it, it was not faith-filled, but it was directed by faith. Because he comes back to God. He comes to the right place. He comes to him with questions. He knows who he needs to approach now in light of where he is at. It is not a pattern of prayer for us, but it is a model of faith. Not a perfect one, but a model of, for us of faith. And when I was thinking about this prayer, the, the words that came to me, it's kind of on the edge of faith. It's real, it's honest, it's on the edge, and it's directed in the right way. And if the words of Christ at Gethsemane were like, picture for me a strike zone. Have you watched in the World Series? The strike zone, you see the little picture, the pattern that's up there. Jesus' words at Gethsemane, his questions to the Father were like a, a strike right down the middle of the plate. Real questions and real faith. 100% God, 100% man. Okay, perfect picture. However, the faith that's exemplified in this prayer of Moses is more right on the edge of the strike zone, okay? As the ball comes in, it's in the right direction, but it's moving the right way, but it's right on the edge of faith, and yet it's directed in the right way. And so we see it's honest. It's not a pattern for us, but it is nonetheless directed correctly. And God's response reminds us that he's patient and he's kind. He doesn't reprimand him at all. He receives it. He's not threatened by his prayer. There's a place for all of us to ask the question, why, to God. But we need to recognize he has the prerogative to answer the question however he chooses. And in this case, he chooses to answer with when, who, and what. The next passage, we see what God says to him. Verse 1 of chapter 6, to this question, to these accusations, God says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do for to Pharaoh. Now you will see, in the midst of disillusionment, in the midst of their circumstances, which is much different than what they had thought they were going to have, now you will see. Now the question is, why now? Why not before? Well, the now in this case isn't so much about seconds or moments or days in the calendar. The now is more about circumstances. It's more about a situation that God now has created, an opportunity for him to reveal who he is. And it's interesting that the now for God in this case is at the very point where Moses is completely deflated. 
It's at the very point where the real condition of Israel is seen in all of its gravity. God says, now is the time you will see what I will do. Completely deflated and completely seen in their condition. And God shows up and says, now you're going to see what I'm going to do. And it reminds us of Peter's words in chapter 5. As he writes to people who are in great persecution. And he writes to them and he says, reminding them. Humble yourselves therefore under, under, under the mighty hand of God. So that at the proper time he may exalt you. At the proper time. It's not just about waiting moments of time. It's about at the right opportunity God will exalt us. And God says now is that opportunity. Now is that point in time where I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. But then he moves on to talk about who. And he just explains who it is that's going to do this in verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. He says, in the past, I've revealed myself in one certain way. He says, I am God Almighty. I'm God all-powerful. But now, I did, not re- I did not reveal myself as the Lord, as I am that I am. I have not revealed this name in the past. And when we read this language, it should perk our ears up and go, what's going on here? What is God saying? He says, in the past, I, I've done it this way, but I haven't revealed myself in this way. Something is taking place in this event. Something has taken place in God's disclosure and his revelation of who he is to his people. And it reminds us again of the importance of this event, of what God is doing at this point in time. I appeared to them as God Almighty, but I did not make my name, the Lord, known to them at that point in time. God is not changing his name. He's not saying now I'm going to... You thought I was this, but now I'm really this. It's not that at all. If you look through scripture, you see different times where God changes the names of other people. Right? Many different occasions. And in those occasions, there's a, there's a reason that he changes their name. There's, there's a new purpose. There's a new role. There's a new aspect to their personality or something he's going to emphasize as he changes their name. However, when God reveals a new name here, he's not just changing his persona, but he is now adding something. He's revealing something new about himself. He's disclosing something new about who he is. And in this case, in this point in time, he says, I want you now, I'm going to reveal myself as the one who redeems. You have known me in the past as creator, as king, as the one who is all powerful, but now you will know me as the one who redeems, who stoops down and condescends to rescue. God Almighty, as he says there, it's used in a number of places throughout the uh, Genesis and the Old Testament. It's the term, and you might have heard it if you've been around El Shaddai. It means what you think it means. God Almighty, it means that he is all-powerful. But it means that this Almighty God is bringing his power, his sufficiency to bear in a particular situation. And if you go back to... um, to Genesis chapter 17 when he appears to Abram. He says at that point in time, he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. In that particular situation, as he reveals himself as God Almighty, he says, be blameless. So he says, your life should take on these kinds of characteristics. But more than that, in that period of time, at that, that moment, he changes the name of Abram to Abraham. And we see that God is going to accomplish his will 
to bless Abram, to bless Abraham, and to make him a father of many nations, even though he didn't have a child, even though at that point in time. And so God says, I'm God Almighty, and I'm going to bring my power to bear in your particular situation so that I will work my will through finite, inadequate, insufficient people. My sufficiency will fill your insufficiency. And so when we think of God Almighty, it's not just that he is and he spoke and that everything, everything came to being. It is the God Almighty who says, I'm going to use my power and my sufficiency specifically in your life to accomplish my will. And that's what he did in Genesis 17 as he talks, interacts with Abram there. But the Lord, the name Yahweh, he says, I did not make myself known. And so God is revealing himself here as the name of the Lord. And it's the, the Lord that's used throughout the rest of Scripture. And we understand him from this context, from this situation. And as one commentator put it, he says, the sufficient God is now going to redefine his, his sufficiency in new as well as old ways. The God is now, the, the sufficient God is now going to redefine his sufficiency in new as well as old ways. And so if we ask the question, what does it mean the Lord what does it mean? There's a variety of ways to, you know, I am that I am. I am who I am. A lot of ink has been spilled and exactly what that means. We are best going to understand who the Lord is by seeing what he does. Another way to put it is the who is going to be understood or known by the what he is going to do. Who is going to be understood by the what. And for us, the best way to define and understand him is in the context of his actions that he's going to do here and so he goes on, he says, this is who I am, the Lord. And then verses 6 through 8, he tells us what he is about to do. And it reminds us in verses 4 and 5, he says, I am the one who has established a covenant. I'm the one who has given them the land. And if you think about it, think about slaves being in Egypt. There's a promise of a land. How nice would that thought be that there would be a home, that there would be a place to go to, that they could call their own. That there would be a point at which God would lead them that would be life to them and freedom for them. And he says, there's a land that I have promised and I will still give. But he also says, I have heard the groaning of the people and I have remembered the covenant that I made with Abraham. So he remembers and that reminds us when he hears and remembers that God is about ready at this point in time to act. And so the who now, the I am who I am, the one who is powerfully present, when and where and how he chooses is at this point in time going to bring his dynamic presence to bear in their particular situation. He's going to bring his power into their predicament and he's going to rescue. Verses 6 through 8 tell us what this is. The what. We see there's real questions of why. God doesn't answer the questions why. He says when and now at just the right time. Who, the God who redeems, is going to do what? Verses 6 through 8, he says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out, of, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into a land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Do you see the progression there? I will take you from, I will deliver you from, and I will deliver you to. What's important for us as we look at that, and you probably caught it when I read through that, you see that this is something that God is doing completely. 
And the word, the phrase, I will, is used seven different times in these two short verses. When God says, you, what you can't do, I will do. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land and I will give you the land for your possession. And the central term in this whole area, the central understand, the way we understand what God is doing, his actions as well as his name is the term redemption. Who is God and what he is doing is that he is now redeemer. He is rescuing. He is ransoming his people. What this means is up to this point in history is that God has revealed himself as creator. He's revealed himself as king. He's revealed himself as all-sufficient one. But at this point in time and in and through this historic event, he says, now I'm going to reveal myself as redeemer, as the one who rescues, as the sufficient one who, now, who is now going to step into this situation in which he, they find themselves in an intimate, personal, and astounding role. He is going to now redeem them and rescue them. As he discloses his new name, we come to an understanding, a deeper understanding of who he is, of what he is about to do, his purposes, that his purposes have something to do with saving people, rescuing people from being enslaved. He will condescend, he will step down into their situation, into their predicament, and he will ransom them from their enslaved position. This is who God is. This is what he is going to do. The term redemption throughout the Old Testament is a beautiful term. It's rich. Many different components, many different aspects to it. And you can think of different ones. Two pieces that's important. One, that there's a relationship of redeemer to redeemed. That there's a relationship. And that God identifies himself. He identifies Israel as the firstborn his firstborn, so there's a relationship that's there. And you can go and read the book of Ruth and you see a picture of a kinsman redeemer when Boaz comes and redeems Ruth, the wife of his cousin who had passed away. And so you see a picture there. But there's also, there's a relationship, but there's also a cost that's involved in redemption. For rescue, for redemption, for ransom to take place, there's a cost that's necessary. And we see both of these at work in this account, in the historic account. There's two levels of redemption. One is the historic event here. Again, God was really stepping into time and space and rescuing real people out of real slavery and to deliver them into a real land, a real place where his intentions. But the pattern that God works here, the pattern that we see him doing is that from this historic event, he's telling us something about who he is and what his intentions are on a grander scale. That the central heart isn't just about a group of people, although it is. That God's intentions are to save his people. And we ask the question, how is it that God will save? What is it that we understand salvation to be? It is to be a rescue. It's to rescue people from slavery. And so we see that the Exodus redemption is a pattern demonstrating God's intentions to bring glory to himself by redeeming his people from slavery of sin and death. And we see the gospel present here. We see the good news of God's saving intentions in this story, in this account. What God is doing. There's two pieces I want to pull out of this before I conclude. What is God doing? What do we learn about God's redemptive plans, his intentions, as it relates to us here in the New Testament? Experiencing the new covenant, the promises that God has made for us, first of all. 
We see that God's sovereign action on behalf of his people is what redemption is understood by. We understand it's God's sovereign work on behalf of his people. And then it's reiterated throughout this passage, verses 6 through 8, when God says, I will. I will do this. I am the one who can do this. And if you think about it, 400 years of slavery had not brought them any closer to being free. It had only entrenched them even more in their slavery. So the condition of the people was such that there was no way they were getting out. Indeed, they were becoming more enslaved as time went on, not less. Their condition, even understand the promises in verse 9 where it says, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They were dead in relationship to, to their ability to rescue themselves. They could not rescue themselves. It took one on the outside, one with all power who could step in to their situation and give them life and rescue them out and lead them away. And so we see that God's sovereign action on behalf of his people is seen in redemption. We understand that in salvation as well. People who could do nothing on our part to save ourselves, enslaved to sin, is very much a part of what God is doing. He's stepping into our situation, into our predicament, and he is rescuing us by his power. Nothing that we can do in and of ourselves. The second part of the redemption as it relates to the gospel here, we see that there is a, there is a redeeming Delivering from and a delivering to. And we talked about the progression I mentioned. You, you, I noted it. I'll deliver you from. I'll bring you out of. I'll redeem you. I'll take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will take you to a land, to a place that I will give you. And so you see the negative aspects and from and the positive and taking to. Both are a part of the gospel. Both are there. That they needed to be redeemed, rescued from slavery. But God didn't just leave them in the wilderness. Now you're free, fly and be free. He said, no, now I've got something more I need to do. That redemption involves from and to. From slavery to life, to worship, to a relationship with God, to a community of believers who understand what it means or are identified by the redemption that God brings. The passage I read or quoted in my opening prayer in Colossians chapter 1 where Paul writes, that we are delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, reminds us we are delivered from the dominion of darkness, transferred into the kingdom now, the service of the son, the rule now of the son in whom we have redemption. And to get only half of this, to only get part of this, is to truncate the gospel. To get just the from part or the to part is to misunderstand the whole of the gospel, the whole of the picture of redemption. It's to miss the wonder of what God is doing in our lives. Not just to rescue us and to leave us on our own, but to rescue us and to bring us into a relationship with him and into a community of people. And no matter what our circumstances are, we need to remember that we have been redeemed, that we have been rescued from slavery to sin. And I know some of us in this room have, have tasted to a greater degree the slavery that sin brings in our lives. And we know what that means. And we know that there's real freedom that comes in the redemption that God offers to us. Others of us, by God's grace, have not experienced that kind of dominion of sin in our lives. That bondage of sin. But by his grace, we at the same time has been, have been rescued from the reality of that sin. So that is real for us. At the same time, whether we know it or not, we've been brought into a secure and intimate relationship with God. 
that he has brought us into a secure and safe place in which he brings all of his sufficiency to bear in and through our lives. To say, you are now mine and all that I have, I will now give to you to enable you to accomplish my will. He is still God Almighty, but he is also God the Redeemer. And he brings his almighty power into this new role in our lives to not just save us, but now enable us to walk with him, to make us sufficient. This new redemption comes also a community of people that defines us by this event. Just as the people of Israel were defined by that event, so we are defined by the event of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. This, we remember him. We remember what he did for us. And we come here to recite, to remember that thing that most defines us. And if you will, we play the game back to remember who are we again? Whose are we again? We go, yes, that's who we are. That's whose we are. The one who bought us. The one who most defines us, who made us his. And finally, redemption promises us an eternal home. The image of these land is more than what acres can describe. The image of land in this passage and throughout the Old Testament, indeed all of the scriptures, is about the land that God will bring us to, the land of freedom. It's a metaphor of our eternal home. And so God has met our deepest need in rescuing us. He's given us our greatest desire in bringing us to himself, putting us with a community of people, the community who are those who have been redeemed and ransomed. I, was, I watched an interview just recently with Bill and Melinda Gates as they talked about their foundation. You might be familiar with it, but they have, they have literally given billions of dollars in um, countries and places where children are in great need of health care. And they're, they're, they're seeing good things. They're able to give immunizations and clean water and a kind of health care that they couldn't have had otherwise. Just to, to make them sustainable, to make them, just to keep them living and to give them a kind of life that they wouldn't have had. They're still in the same situation, the same predicament, but they're helping them and they're assisting them. And that's a wonderful thing that God is doing or they are doing. And, and uh, whether they attribute it to God or not, there's a kind of work that's there. But I want us to picture something now. That's great. That's bringing, that's a billionaire bringing his sufficiency to bear in the needs of others. And he helps him kind of exist. Picture now the same man who would come and step into a situation and find children who are orphans who are enslaved. And he would say, I can throw all kinds of money at this situation, but they're going to still be enslaved. I can give them immunizations, but they're still going to be enslaved. I can give them clean water, but they're still going to be in the same situation they were in. And out of his own mercy, his own kindness, he steps into their situation and says... There's need more here than just what my money can do. I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to bring my sufficiency to bear. I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to adopt them. I'm going to bring these children into my home. I'm going to give them food and water and, and all those things they need, of course. But more than that, I'm going to give them a home. And what we see in that picture is the astounding role that God has done, where he has done more than just provided for our needs. He is provider. He's done more than just created us. He did do that. He has now redeemed us and rescued us and he saw our deepest need and he transferred us into, adopted us into his home and has made us his. And so he has met our deepest need. He has granted our greatest desire and given us a place in this rescue. This account, this event is a picture of God's heart to save, to step into the situation of each one of us and to bring his redeeming, his rescuing power to bear in our lives. We looked at the why Lots of questions for people with feet of clay. 
We looked at the who, who or the, or the when, God says now. We looked at the who and God says this is who I am. We understand the who by the what he is about to do. Final question I'll conclude with is how. How is it that this took place? How is it that this redemption was accomplished? It was through one spotless lamb. If you know the story of the Exodus, one spotless lamb for each family was killed. The blood was placed in the doorposts of each home. There was a celebration. It was a celebration that was instituted for generations to come. The celebration reminds us that this wasn't just a one-time deal. This was something that needed to be remembered because it would be fulfilled and completed. As the death angel came by, as the death angel passed by and saw the blood, we know that it was a message that those in this household were those who are trusting in the Redeemer. And we know that the Egyptians, the firstborn, was killed. And by judgment were the people freed and redeemed. We know the rest of the story, though, as well, don't we? We know the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, who came and gave his life to redeem us from the slavery of sin. The spotless lamb who came, the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, came and laid his life down for us so that we could be delivered from the slavery to sin. And Peter reminds us that the great cost of this ransom wasn't with money or jewels or silver. It was with the costly blood of Christ, the precious lamb. And as we sit here today, we sit as a group of people who have been identified, who have been marked by that event in history. Not the event that happened in Exodus, but as, as the event that that pointed to the event of Jesus Christ who died for us. And in him, we find our great hope. In him, we can ask the questions. We find the who, the when, and the what. As we understand the how, we understand that he has done everything that is necessary for us. That's why we're here this morning to celebrate the greatness of our God who has met our deepest need and granted our greatest desire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We can't imagine and we can't even get our minds around the reality that the almighty God, the creator, holy one of the universe who spoke all things into existence would step into our situation, would step into our predicament and use your power to save us, to redeem us. And not just do that, but then to bring us into a relationship with you that is secure with a group of people. And so we sit here this morning, Father, as a community of those who have been redeemed, a fellowship of those who have been ransomed and we remember the story and we retell it over and over because that's who we are and that's whose we are. We come as a community this morning of people with great needs and we come to the all-powerful one, the all-sufficient one and we think of, of Carrie Woods' mom as she fights and battles with cancer that you would be with her. Father, we think of Mel Raines and we are grateful for the the good news of his progress and rehabilitation. We pray for him that you would continue to be with he and his family. Dorothy, Father, that you would strengthen them and bring him to a full recovery. And we pray as well for Bill and Karen that you give them rest and time. And I think of even some folks I talked with this morning who cancer was the diagnosis. And I pray that you'd be with them as well. Father, we are a community that receives your power, needs your sufficiency, but we do not just keep it. We get to broadcast it. We get to live it out as we understand who we are, 
We're not just Jayhawk fans. We're people redeemed by God. And I pray, Father, that we would live our lives in such a way, reflecting the great glory of you and the worth of who you are and what you've done for us. I think of the missionaries that we've had the great privilege of sending out, Steve and Anna to Asia, Scott and Tracy Ketro to Italy. Uh, I think of Dan and Tina Rudman here in Lawrence and many, many others, Father. Would you be at work in each of their lives and their situations, bringing them, taking the gospel through them, the gospel of your redemption to them in their particular places and use them in a powerful way even now, Father. Father, enable us to leave this place this morning, remembering again who we are and what you've done for us. We need you to do it because we forget so easily. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the uh, recitation here that we are a part of, the remembrance and the celebration that this is all a part of. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I ask you to stand now as we receive God's benediction to us. The response is, uh, you, if you haven't gotten the theme of this message of the morning and the response is there is a redeemer we're going to sing and and so receive this now as God's benediction to his redeemed people now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask according to his power that's at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen a redeemer Jesus God's own son precious lamb of God Messiah holy one thank you oh my father for giving us your